You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 23, and we're your hosts, Brandon and Daniela. Hello. Hi. What's up? Well, I figured we would try something different this week. And instead of starting off with news commentary about the latest news or findings on fermentation, The latest and the greatest? Yes. Instead of doing that, we'll save that towards the end. Okay. And instead, we're going to jump right into our topic of the day, which is looking at salt a little, little bit more since it's such an important part of fermentation. But before we get into that, if you, you know, have any thoughts either direction or if you just really don't have any preference at all and want to share it with us anyway about the order of these things, if you like this more, if you don't like it more, then go ahead and go to the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash 23 and uh, leave your feedback in the comments there or send us an email at podcast at firmup.com and, and let us know if, if you prefer it this way, prefer it the other way, just trying it out, testing it out. So again, to be able to jump right in, salt. Yes, I love salt. Yes, you love salt just in general. Like yes, just I do. As, just as a is a It's one of my favorite seasonings. So you make sure you put salt on everything? Pretty much, yes. Unless it's supposed to be sweet. And even sometimes sweet sweet things, cookies, otherwise. Well, yeah. A lot I mean, of times when I make smoothies, I'll add just a just a tiny pinch of salt. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it can it can it can balance out a lot of different flavors and, and bring it can out fix sweetness. Any meal. That might be the salt bad. can fix an email. Yes. It can also ruin meals when I think there's too much. I don't think so. But looking at a little bit more specifically with fermentation, I mean, uh, too much salt can actually cause the wrong things to ferment, the wrong bacteria to take over. Yeah, I could see that. So if you're just talking cooking, that's maybe a place of opinion. But when it comes to fermentation, you can't have too much salt. Or too little. Or too little. Although I would... would I would argue that too much probably would be better than too little. Or am I wrong? You're wrong. Okay. You're wrong in the sense of that too little is going to not necessarily guarantee that lactic acid bacteria and other beneficial bacteria are going to ferment. Especially, we're talking about lactic acid fermentation here. And so uh, vegetable ferments We'll just look at more specifically. And if you have too little, then unless a person's backslopping and adding some other kind of way or something else to it, it's it's potential for other things to take over. But usually if it's something like sauerkraut, it's just going to be mushier. Otherwise, if there's too little salt and, or the temperatures um, are wrong. But if there's too much, then you're also blocking out the lactic acid bacteria that are going to be the friendly ones that are going to give that nice taste profile. And even if you don't wipe out all of them and you still get some friendly bacteria it's not necessarily going to be the taste taste profile that most people would equate to that specific kind of ferment. But would it be a bad ferment though, or would it just be it a could different go bad. flavor? Because it, uh, especially if you put way too much salt, it's bad. It's, I mean, it's more like curing it. It's not going to be for it's, it's at a certain point. It's not really going to ferment too much. Okay. Or fermentation will be secondary to the flavor. And the preservation will just be simply through salt. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, um, the salt, I mean, is an essential part of animal life. I mean, we all need salt. And sure, there's all those health back and forth stuff about salt, sodium, and relating to health and and disease. And we're not going to get into any of that today. 
but it is important to understand that salt, we have to have salt and it's been an important commodity throughout history. It's been something that's been traded and fought over. Wars have been fought. I mean, people have been killed over salt. Uh, a lot of money has been spent. Taxes have been put in place for salt. Nowadays, it's kind of taken for granted because salt is so cheap. Yeah, why is that? Through the industrialization of food processing. I'm assuming, I don't know exactly the tra- trajectory that, that has specifically made it so simple and so easily accessible, but just like so many things in life, so many spices, sugars, everything. I mean, we we have the global market to make these things very cheap. I mean, we're, we're talking the, the process of getting salt. It's not that salt is scarce in the world. I mean, there's, there's really no measurement on how much salt there is in the world because there's really no real concern at this point that we're going to run out of salt. That would be such a sad day. I, yes, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, well, I don't, it, it couldn't happen in the sense of we need salt in order to, to live, but it, it's with, with salt. I mean, it's, it's either sea seawater or or rock salt, so it's either well, it's pretty much all originating from the sea at one point. You know, it's either sea salt that's produced by the evaporation of seawater, which there's been many processes throughout history of different ways of doing that through it, that evaporation, evaporating the the water out, so you just get the salt left over. Doing that by solar evaporation or by different forms of heat boiling it, boiling water down and can, can, uh, evaporating the water and using wood or coal and different cities have been set up based on what kind of access they had to certain materials, be it wood or be it coal or be it, you know, uh, enough heat and, and not too much rain in order to be able to, to evaporate those things. But then the other way is kind of, uh, the salt mines, which are, ancient seabeds evaporated seas to us to an essence so so you'll have that throughout different parts of the world you'll have different deposits of salt that can be mined out as opposed to evaporated but both take you know a lot of a lot of work which regions would have the the salt mines throughout the world there's different places i mean there's places in the united states a lot of places in, in in europe and and um, and elsewhere in the world. Okay, so it's pretty much spread around. Yeah, and you'll find different cities have been named after salt. Uh, and it, I can't think of any of them off the top of my head, but there's different cities throughout the world that were salt mining cities or had salt works, and so they were they had that in their name. Like the na- the word salt in that language? or Yeah, yeah. Cool. Exactly. So, so yeah, salt has been, played a, a huge part. I mean, today, again, we take it for granted. I mean, the table salt, the, the, the general sodium chloride is what table salt is. It's been processed and on for a lot of table salt, the iodine is added as well. So why is that? Iodine is added for the potential for iodine deficiency, which is still a concern in a lot of developing countries. I can't remember if it's hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism, but it's it it 
if a person is not have enough, it does not have enough iodine, then it can cause issues like that. And also it's important for children to have enough iodine because then it helps with mental retardation or so it helps to, uh, uh, to, it's, a, it's, I guess the, the simplest way to eliminate counter- counteract the potential for that. So is this just one of those things where they've decided to add this specific ingredient to salt? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the reasoning was behind adding that to salt. I don't, I don't, I don't really know what those would be. But in, in yes, given that salt's put on everything, it was a way to guarantee that there's enough iodine. Now, a person so can get I, too much iodine too. Too much or not enough is either direction is not good. But I don't. I'm not an expert on iodine, so I don't really have any clue. So if I get like the real salt, does that have any any of that? Real in salt it? being the brand of salt that is. Yeah. That is mined. There, there's a salt mine for you. Real salt is a salt mine, I believe, in Idaho or something like that. Yes. And um, mined salt or that is that is not refined and then sea salt, they're all going to have trace minerals in them. And some of those may be naturally occurring iodine. Oh, okay. Be, uh, but it's not to the same level as the iodine that's put into into salt. I haven't eaten table salt for a long time, but there's other, there's, there's iodine in all kinds of foods and there's definitely, I mean, things that are in the sea, there's iodine. So fish and, and different fish have different levels, but even fruits and vegetables have some iodine. It depends on the soil content of different areas, but, uh, seaweed kelp, I mean, that's the, that's the strongest or the, seems to be the, the highest level of iodine that a person can get. Oh, okay. In a natural more food. So, oh. Way more than, well, I don't know if, I don't know how the measurements work out, but in, for how much kelp a person eats versus how much salt they would eat. I don't, I, I still think kelp has a lot more in it than, than salt, than iodized salt, iodized salt. But it's, uh, it's really one of those things that it doesn't matter really when it comes to fermentation, whether a person's using iodized salt or non-iodized salt you'll see a lot online that it does make a difference, but I, I can't find any thing that really states that that's the case. A lot of times, you know, someone will, even if you have anecdotal evidence of someone saying I used iodized salt, it destroyed my ferment and everything went wrong. That's just like a personal. Well, it's just a personal anecdote of something that didn't necessarily turn out, but ferments don't turn out all the time, always for any other reasons. And so iodized salt is just one scapegoat to look at. Could it have something to do with it? Yes. At a high enough level, iodine can be my antimicrobial, which would inhibit the fermentation. But in general, that's not really the case. But the one interesting thing I did find was that in, it was fermentation and canning, and it was talking about, about what it is that iodized salt does cause. And that's more to texture and color. Iodine will discolor certain foods and it might create some spottiness. And the, the, the good example is cauliflower will sometimes turn pink or purple if there's enough iodine in the salt. Oh, really? So yeah. table salt, is it not all across the board the same amount of iodine or does it really depend on the brand? I don't really have any clue. I don't know if I, I'm pretty certain there's a standardized level, but again, if a person's eating sea salt, most kosher salt, I don't think any kosher salt has iodine in it either. And sea salt, any kind of 
rock salts or anything like that. They're not going to, unless it, it's just a general table salt. All the salts that don't have iodine in them will generally say, have like a little note or a warning saying this does not contain iodine. Why so is you're not salt getting your, mate the way it is though? Why is it table salt the most common salt currently being sold? It's the most highly processed, so it takes out all the other minerals in it. Why, though? Because people wanted the whitest salt, or is there a reason? I mean, I would, wouldn't that really cost more to separate everything from the salt that real, like, not the brand, but just like real salt that what's included, you know, salt has different, I mean, of course there are different kinds of salt, but... You know, the basic white salt has minerals and different things that don't make it just pure white. So why would companies go through all the hassle to process it? Is it really cheaper? Good question. I haven't actually... That's that's actually probably something that's covered in the book Salt, A History of the World. Or I can't remember exactly what the, the title of that is right off the top of my head. But I've I've been listening to that as an audiobook off and on for the last few months. It's very fascinating looking at the history of salt. And so that's a good book. I'll put it in the show notes as well. And that one may state later on. I think I'm still probably only halfway through the book or whatnot. So I I have not ever gotten to the point of the modernization of salt and getting to the sodium chloride only being the main, the main kind of salt that's, that's used. And, but you're right. It is only one of many, many kinds of salts throughout the world and salted. That's a great book. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. Okay. So that maybe goes we into could... all the different kinds of specialty salts. I mean, you're talking fancier salts. You're talking more expensive salts. They're more expensive because the processing is on a smaller scale because that's the thing you're talking about it being a lot of work to remove the trace minerals from these things. Well, but just... processing is just an industrialized process. It's not one of those handcrafted kind of things. So as opposed to artisanal salts, or more uh, traditional salts, as opposed to the more modern salt. The modern salt is probably cheaper to produce because it can be produced on such a large scale and clean, and they can get it from multiple sources. I don't understand why they have to clean it. If there's no benefit to it. it, sound it like. The consistency would be one. But real salt is, has its consistency. In real, are you talking about the brand real salt? Yeah, the the brand real, of real salt, salt and any other kind of salt. A lot of those are coming from one specific location. But if you think about how much salt there is in the world, and especially how much is table salt, that's a lot of salt. It's kind of going back to that it just Starbucks seems thing. So silly how we've come to this point of let's remove a lot of minerals from salt just so it could all look the same. I think maybe we should look into this further and maybe follow up next week. Sure. I mean, definitely look into it. I mean, I'd be curious to know as well, but it's kind of like that Starbucks thing. I mean, for consistency reasons, I mean, all Starbucks coffee is uh, generally, I would say burnt a little bit. It's over, over, uh, it's, it's a style, it's a certain style of coffee, but at the same time, when they're sourcing that many coffees from all over the world and they're creating consistent blends, it's a lot easier to do that if you're charring the coffee because charred coffee all kind of starts to taste the same and you lose that individual qualities of the different regional coffees. So with salt and, and that, that's definitely look it up. I don't really, I don't really have any concept (laughs) as to, as to why that is. But if, if a person's using ferments and they're worried about 
about something going wrong, or if you just don't want to be able to blame iodized salt on a ferment going wrong, if you don't, if you want to just take that out of the picture, then use something else. But in general, if iodized salt is all a person has and they're fermenting something, just use that salt. Most likely it's going to work fine. And anecdotally, I've seen a lot of people online and otherwise say that iodized salt has worked. I haven't tried it myself, but again, I'd have to do some experiments and try it multiple times to see what's actually doing it, what's not. But from what I understand, I mean, there's nothing at the levels of iodine in the salt. It's not going to alter the, the, the thing, but you'll see everywhere on the internet. It's just kind of parroted and repeated throughout so many blog posts and otherwise that don't use iodized salt. Well, that's just people following each other's. It's kind of like, why don't use anything that has an extra ingredient? I, I, it sounds like one of those things where the, well, the, the concept of not using table salt, um, it, it to me sounds like it's just one of those things that people jump on this assumption that anything extra is going to damage, you know, the experience. So let's just not use it, which isn't always the case. Yeah. Now, I mean, again, the things that it will do are potentially discolor it, potentially change the texture, but it's not going to, or not the texture. I'm sorry. Just, just the, 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 the look and make it spotty or unusual color. So really that's the only thing that a person, if, if aesthetically, you're fine with ferments kind of looking however, and it's not even necessarily going to do it for all things. Why do you choose um, other salts versus table salt? Like what are the differences then between the other salts? Sure, but I was asking you specifically too. Like why do you not use regular white table salt? I feel like I'm getting enough iodine in my diet anyway. I don't really eat a whole bunch of processed food, so I'm getting hopefully some iodine in otherwise. And... I guess I've just never really used table salt, at least maybe as a kid I did, but I didn't before I ever knew of salt. I didn't, but I may have used it, but I like other salts because they taste different. Yeah. I was just wondering, um, for me though, personally, I think it just, other salts taste better. They have different flavors. They're richer. Well, they definitely, and all those trace minerals and all those different things in them do make a difference and does make the salt taste different. And it may alter the fermentation the fermentation taste as well or it will add some different flavors now a lot of times in fermentation i'll just use a, a if i'm doing large batches of something i'm not necessarily going to use an artisanal salt for that or in fact most of the, i wouldn't really sometimes i'll use something like real salt which i don't really consider an artisanal salt but i it's it's more so than table salt yeah it's, well and it's definitely more expensive than table salt but if i'll sometimes use real salt real salt otherwise i'll just use like a uh a kosher salt or or, you know, diamond crystal kosher salt I'll use a lot of times just because it's a nice flake salt that absorbs really well. So I just use something like that because it's cheaper if I'm doing a really large batch of, of sauerkraut or or even kimchi or otherwise. Does that have iodine? No. Okay. Again, I don't think any kosher salts do or possibly can. I don't know if it's kosher to put iodine in, in salt. But the whole concept of of salting things, I mean, that's that's very... That's that's prehistoric. I mean, I actually don't know how long ago people started using salt to preserve foods, but I mean, really, preserving foods... And enhances flavor. Enhances flavor, but originally, I mean, salt was really allowed civilization to happen in a lot of ways because it was one of the first ways to preserve things. Not only through fermentation, but for, through curing of meats and of curing of, of things. I mean, adding... I, I My guess is that 
and this is just my theory is that fermentation came after and that salt curing was what came first. And really? as far as I understand, it's just because all these things go prehistory. So which one came first for sure isn't probably known, but it just makes more sense that you add a bunch of salt to things. It's not going, it's just going to be preserved. It's just not going to ferment or rot. But if you add a little less salt, then it will start to ferment. And so I think that at later point, people started to realize that they could preserve things other ways. And then that's when you get civilization and you get agriculture and you get these crops that people don't have to be hunters and gatherers. They can then start preserving their things with salt and keeping it and no longer needing to be nomadic. They can stay in one region and preserve their foods. But what's really going on with this salt is it's creating an environment I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but it's creating an environment for fermin, the, the kind of bacteria that we want in fermentation. Which is? Well, we want the, the kind of environment that is conducive to mainly, again, for lactic acid bacteria, uh, the LAB, the lab. We want those bacteria and, you know, and some things, a little bit of yeast is involved, but for especially speaking specifically of vegetables, we want lactic acid bacteria to, to do the fermentation process. If we're talking about sauerkraut, we want specific lactic acid bacteria, many different kinds, to proliferate at different stages in the fermentation process. To make it delicious. To make it delicious and also make sure that pathogenic bacteria are left out of the equation. So they cannot proliferate. Because what salt does, well, salt sucks. I mean, it really does. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it does. I mean, in, 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 it, it sucks the water out. Yeah, through osmosis. And so that is the, that, that osmosis, you know, being that balancing act of, of water, of water. And, you know, if you want to, if you want to look at it a little bit more specifically and would be water being a solvent and salt being a solute together, they create a solution. Hmm. So That's interesting. that solution is salt, whichever perfect balance of a fermented vegetable. No, no. I mean, we're talking just osmosis here and, and the movement of water move. The water is going to always move from low to high concentrations of solute. So if inside, okay, I guess it's, I should step back just an extra second as well. I love when you step back. Go ahead. Looking at, the cell of a bacteria, the bacteria, the single cell organism inside the cell, there's water because all living things need water without water. There isn't life, at least not on earth, maybe on some other planet. There's some crazy other ways that things are living, but without the water, there is no life. It is you know, pretty... very little moisture is more, I guess you could say for bacteria. They need moisture. It's a little scary to think that though, that without water, everyone is vulnerable to death or is pretty much dead. Yeah. And that, that goes for bacteria. Now, bacteria, a lot of times can, you know, find ways to preserve themselves in ways that we can't or have not figured out how to do yet. Maybe freezing ourselves or something will work in the future at some point, but 
nothing's been figured out yet. Yeah, that would be a little freaky. But that's kind of like what some of these things do. They encapsulate themselves. Like we talked about uh, C. botulinum that does that in the uh, episode about the botulism boogeyman. But the uh, the thing is, is that bacteria need water. And most bacteria, or a lot of bacteria, cannot deal well with salt. Because what's happening is that salt is... There's more salt water on the outside and then the inside is being sucked. The water is being sucked out. It's being sucked through that porous cell wall because that's the way that water moves. It moves from the low concentration of salt. There's, there's very little salt inside or probably not much of any of any at all inside the bacteria, but there is water and that water, you know, wants to go where the solute is, where the salt is. How does scanning compare to that? I don't know what your question is. How does scanning, like getting oxygen out? We're talking completely different things. I don't know exactly what you're asking. It's, well, okay. So again, we're talking about, about salt and water and how it affects things. I mean, you're not salt doesn't have anything to do with the preservation side of things. And you're trying to create a sterile environment when you're talking about canning. So what we're talking about though here is when you're using a salt brine or adding salt to, you can, you can look at it in the same sense of sauerkraut. When you add salt to it, it's osmosis. That's leaching the liquid out of that. And again, it's because you put it another way. So water, water moves towards a lower concert that, that water moves towards a lower concentration of water and there's a lower concentration of water. When you add salt to water, there's more, there's salt as opposed to no salt inside, but there's water in both. And the water wants to balance out and balance out that solute and make it as much water as possible. So, you know, and of that is affected by oxygen. No. Okay. I mean, there's, I guess the H2O aspect of that. I don't know how that oxygen hydrogen are going to affect your i don't i'm not a chemist i don't really know all those those kind of questions i don't know how oxygen in those inside the water is actually affecting that but through osmosis this these permeable cell walls things are, are they move through it like i said the sauerkraut it we get the juices out of the sauerkraut by adding salt to it you can do the same kind of experiment with a uh, to to kind of see it in another sense is you could put salt water, have one bowl of salt water, one bowl of water, and then add a chunk of cucumber, not cucumber. Cucumber might work, but celery is another good one with a good cells wall structure. This in the one, the, the salt water, the celery is going to shrink up and shrivel up, not shrivel up completely, but it's going to shrivel up a lot. And then in the one that you dunk the chunk of celery into the, into the plain water, it's going to expand because that water wants to fill in there. Okay. So that's how that works. And so what you have is when you're dealing with, with bacteria that cannot deal with salt, which lactic acid bacteria can deal with salt, which is why we're creating a good environment for them. But when you're dealing with bacteria that can't deal with salt, well, then their water is getting leached out of them in a salt brine. And once that desiccation happens, their insides become a desert and they die. Cool. Sad, but I guess cool. 
And what what that means, I mean, it, it, that happens with anything. I mean, it happens with plants, living plants. It happens with us. I mean, Just that's why... It means that everything is living. Yeah, I mean, we well, we can't... I mean, these are the reasons why you can't drink salt water, seawater. Not because it's going to make a person go crazy or whatnot, like any of those myths, but it will speed up the dehydration process because the more salt we have in ourselves, the more we're drying out our own cells. That's why like some people choose to, you know, either cut down on salt or they will not cut down on salt, but they'll say they'll drink more water. Um, But drinking the balance of salt is important. I don't know enough about the health aspects of it, but there's different theories on it, but salt is important. I mean, a person can drink too much water where they're not having enough salt in their system either, especially if they're cutting down on their salt and drinking a lot of water, mm-hmm. then a person can be Because they're diluting. Limited. They need salt. People need salt. Yeah, I don't know specifically what, but it, it, it's like they're diluting something in their system by cutting salt and drinking too much water. They could actually die from it. Yeah, it, it, there are actual dangers of having not enough salt as well. And and also, and wa- drinking a lot of water is one way to, again, change that Balance. solution inside the body as well. But... On the bacteria side of things, that's where lactic acid bacteria evolved at some point to be able to to deal with salt. They have a salt tolerance, if you will. They're halo tolerant. They're what? Halo tolerant. Mm-hmm. That means they're they're salt tolerant. There's also halophilic lactic acid bacteria. There's also halophilic other bacteria and yeast and other microorganisms. But specifically looking at lactic acid bacteria, there's halo tolerant and halophilic. The halophilic are again Going, if you want to borrow some of the terminology from some of our other talks, mesophilic, thermophilic, heat-loving being thermophilic bacteria, halophilic are salt-loving is one way to translate that into something easy to remember. Cool. I like that one. Halo-tolerant, they're just they're, – they do fine, but they don't necessarily thrive in high, high levels, whereas some lactic acid bacteria can – I mean, and then some other bacteria can survive in rock – deposits of salt i mean there's there's bacteria that are so that would die if they aren't in extreme amounts of salt lactic acid bacteria not quite that halophilic but they still love their salt some of them do but it's this is this is also different than sporulation because there's there's sporulation that generally happens with some bacteria when either things dry out too much or there's an environment that's that's hostile to them or it's too hot, it's too cold, and they'll sporulate. They'll put out spores, which is pretty much encapsulating their DNA and saving themselves for later. Cool. So that they can reproduce later on. But that's different. That's not it doesn't have anything to do with. I wonder if we could do it with. No, I'm just kidding. With what? Nothing. It's not something that that this has anything to do with because even I don't even think that non halo tolerant bacteria, non salt tolerant bacteria, I'll have to look this up, but I don't think that they are actually able to sporulate in too much salt. I think that they just kind of, kind of die. C botulinum is uh, the clostridium botulinum. That is one that does sporulate you know, in canning, if it's not canned at a high enough temperature for a long enough period of time, that's, that's what I'm talking about. The sporulation. So go back to that, uh, that C botulinum episode, the botulism episode to, to learn more about the sporulation. But this, this is about actually being able to thrive in these salty environments and they use energy to keep from drying out. So it does, they are working 
if you will, the bacteria are working in order to be able to get this to work. And what they're doing is accumulating organic compounds, which balance out and keep the, the water from leaving their little single cell. So either their environment, they're, they're drawing these organic compounds from their environment or that they're synth- synthesized. And one way to look at these things is they're the osmoprotectants. They're protecting them from osmotic pressure. Osmo- so they're protecting it from osmosis, the process of osmosis. It's, it's protecting, it's keeping its water within its cell walls and not, it's, it's sharing. I don't know exactly because again, I'm not deep enough into chemistry to, to know all the, the specifics, but the kind of way that I kind of look at it is the, those organic compounds are protecting it from the osmotic pressure by kind of tricking it probably not tricking it, but the things inside of it balance out and equal out with the salt outside. So it's not the water doesn't try and try and do anything otherwise. But uh, these are, they're also referred to as natural osmolites. And they're one is one's one of the specific ones that's in lactic acid bacteria a lot are that it will, that it will create our beta. Oh, I can never pronounce this one. Uh, beta. Betaen, betaen, because it's it's uh, it's an organic compound that was originally found in beets, so that's where the beet comes from, and it, it doesn't look like betaen. It doesn't. It's b e t a i n e. So it's it's definitely not spelled the way it looks. But anyway, moving on. Those are really the superheroes of lactic acid bacteria. That's what allows them to survive, and not other things. Now again, there's other bacteria that can survive in salt. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like there's always bacteria that could survive in anything. Yeah, very extreme conditions. But when we're talking about lactic acid fermented vegetables, the lactic acid bacteria, they're going to create the best environment. The salt is what's going to start the environment in the right direction. With that, the right amount of salt, which a lot of times is from 2 to 5%. Is it really difficult to figure out the the ratio? Or uh, like how how wrong could it go if, you know, I, I were to just put some salt and some sauerkraut, like you're not really paying attention to the quantity um, of the vegetable and and the salt ratio. I mean, is it pretty flexible in in a sense that it would still ferment really relatively well? And or I mean, h- how easy I guess or difficult would it be to mess this up? I'd say you can go from say one percent to okay six or seven percent salt. Okay, and so there, I mean, there's a pretty big window there, but for good texture, good quality. I mean, again, temperature is going to affect this as well, but for a good texture, quality, taste, I go with a 2.25% most of the time. Now, again, I'm, I, I, because I like to weigh it and it's also easier I feel than measuring out with tablespoons and otherwise I can just measure out however much, because I mean, cabbages or any other vegetables are all different sizes anyway. So you know, it's kind of an well, estimate. That's why I, if someone's, I, I, just, it's kind of an estimate a lot of times. Anyway, if someone's just going by a recipe that says a large head of cabbage or a medium sized head of cabbage, there's, and they have a specific tablespoon measurement of how much salt to add to that, then obviously it's not completely perfect. I'm always intrigued by uh, things that we do in this day and age that are, you know, traditions from so many centuries ago. And we have such specific measurements for this. And, you know, um, ratios and back then I'm guessing they just kind of had their own routine. And, and I always wonder that I just a lot of times make 
not as great, you know, not very good batches of whatever they were fermenting and just still ate it because they couldn't measure the specifics. Just always something that intrigues me because, you know, you're stating, oh, I, I do 2.25 ratio of salt. And it's it's just so specific that. Well, I think what you're getting a lot of times nowadays is that there's a disconnect between these traditional concepts of fermentation and otherwise that have been refined over hundreds of years, potentially in some of these communities throughout history. And the line's kind of been broken. We're not, I I haven't learned any kind of fermentation that's been passed down generally generationally. So I've had to learn it. So in essence, kind of how I view that is that people that in the back in the day that fermentation especially before refrigeration when fermentation was really a lot more necessary that or or curing or, or preserving in any other way before canning or refrigeration that these were kind of apprenticeships of sorts well, obviously in a in a commercial sense they would be apprenticeships of people learning from others that have mastered it the the process of fermentation but in general just like passing down from a stereotypically woman to woman in the communities or, you know, for certain things, the men to men, but these things were passed down generationally. And so the previous generations had already kind of figured things out. And so there was probably some of that aspect of what's that. I don't know if it's a joke or just a a story in regard to that. I am going to totally butcher this, but it does deal with, with ham and and in a slow cooker, I think. And so like you take a, maybe it was a, a, or a, no, maybe it was a roast, a roast. So the, the tradition was to chop off a chunk of the, the end of the roast. And, you know, grandmother had taught that to her daughter and that daughter had taught it to her daughter kind of thing. It had been passed down, you know, and they all cut off the little chunk. And then once the, the youngest daughter finally asked like grandmother, on her dying deathbed, how, like, why are we cutting off like this chunk? What is, what, what's the secret behind that? And she said, because it wouldn't fit in my, uh, pot. (laughs) That's great. So, I mean, you do have some of the things like that, like that probably are passed down and they're just kind of glitches in the system. They weren't explained as the, like, this is how I'm doing it. But people were watching people, how they, they, they saw these things growing up. They, they were taught these kind of things. So I, I understand that. I guess my, my curiosity is really just, have we just really improved the process from many, many years ago, um, you know, by being able to measure and track and do all of these more precise things to that, to the recipes, or were there people out there just as good, if not better than we are today in these processes, not having all of the tools. It's just something I usually think about. It's that intrigues me. It's just, well, were there people that could ferment, sauerkraut so well that they didn't have they just knew exactly the ratios in their heads just by looking at the amount that of cabbage that there is in in a bucket or whatever or were they just not fermenting really great sour, you know sauerkraut and we have been improving it over the years um, by being able to measure I'd say it depends on if a person does it all the time I mean even throughout history I'd say that there's a lot like if it was a craft I would say definitely if people are doing this kind of thing every day, every, all day, I mean, they, we might understand a lot more about it now 
and can potentially, you know, specialize and, and get fine tuned measurements on everything. But yes, before there were all these understandings or different things like this, things had to be done in a certain way. Otherwise things wouldn't work. And if this is a person's livelihood, then, you know, I, I'd say that's kind of the artisanal versus scientific approach to different things, you know, and now we can kind of mix both. And I think they kind of really do go both together. I mean, craft is not just about the art. It's about the science as well now because we have that kind of knowledge. But whatever knowledge they were dealing with back then, I mean, they probably, trial and error, I mean, humans are great with that. I mean, curiosity and figuring out how to do things. And although they might not have known how to do certain things or why certain things happened or the reasons why they thought it were were completely wrong, just like way so many things that we think are a certain way now are probably, we're probably eventually going to find out are wrong. But Um, so even, even when we supposedly know all these things, I mean, we could, we're missing a lot of the key parts to a lot of things, but we still feel like we know a lot of things and, and they're still producing very quality things. Well, cause we don't know any better. Yeah. And so I would still say that there's probably there. Yeah. It's probably both ways. You probably get like some people that were creating really, I mean, probably just like you get today. I mean, people that ferment at home, some people are creating really amazing masterpieces and other people are kind of screwing up almost every time. And just eating it because it's good enough. Because it's good enough or because again, like you said, they don't know any better. So I'm, I'm sure I just have to believe that throughout history that there's been a mix of both of that and all of that. And I don't think technology was, is it, technology is definitely not necessary for fermentation. So at the same time, if through trial and error, I think it's possible to come to what tastes good, what tastes bad. And some of that is probably societal as well, you know, it are cultural people deciding what was the good ferment, what was the bad ferment may have changed. Maybe at one time people liked really soft, soft, sauerkraut. soggy sauerkraut. Yeah, I mean, I and I'm, I'm even wondering, even if today there's a culture that enjoys it a certain way that we would necessarily find it appealing. Definitely, but I think that it's. Anyway, inevitable. we could get back to salts. <laughs> well, that was really kind of the main things for today. I mean, we'll look more at the history or different things of salt in future episodes. But how many salts, different salts, have you tried though? I haven't tried that many. Probably like six or seven different kinds of salt. That's still a you lot know, more than probably a lot of people even are aware that that many that many varieties exist i didn't realize there were so so many and i haven't even tried any of the super fancy ones but that's where that salted book comes in that's where a person and i'll again that will be in the show notes as well and that one just goes into details about all the different artisanal salts throughout the world because salt really does have a specialty market as well and they really do have different flavors it's it's very intriguing i didn't know this either until obviously you introduced me but the yeah, few the w- ones we tasted, it's there's definitely a difference in the taste. It's it's really crazy. Yeah, and I haven't I I actually have a few things fermenting right now that are with made with different salts that I actually kind of forgot about. I need to check those, but they uh I don't I'm sure that it could impart a few different flavors or whatnot, but again, most of them are going to have the the salt, the sodium chloride, and it's still that that is what the back, the lactic acid that bacteria need, but in cooking, like things can be unlocked in different ways, not only based on how crunchy or, or, or large the crystals are, but how they, you know, affect the, the taste of the foods. Well, I mean, some have milder flavors, some have fuller, heavier. I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's, it was definitely new to me. Yeah. So today we were really just looking at the, at the, specifics of how how salt's really creating the environment that we want 
And so, yeah, in future episodes, we'll go into all different kinds of things. And, and especially once I get done with a few more tests of these different salted ferments to see how they really affect the, the flavor, if much at all, then, then we'll definitely follow up with that kind of stuff as well. So what's in the news this week? This week, we've got a few things. And well, I guess, I guess we always say this week, but what we really mean is last week, since by Monday, there's you know, not a whole lot of new things that we can break as the news, true. but, but yeah, so last true. week there was, there was a, 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 a story in the New York times about Danon, you know, Danonis. Yes, um, we do. Yeah. They have their Danimal smoothies for kids that has now 25% less sugar. So that might just sound like a PR kind of thing so why would i want to talk about that but but really it was kind of it was kind of fascinating looking at again we're looking at the really advanced side of food science and about creating foods that are acceptable by the mass markets and everything like that and so kind of looking at some of these yogurts and examples sometimes can be very helpful because like when i'm making yogurt at home yeah, something's not quite the texture that I wanted or it wasn't quite the same consistency. I kind of like those inconsistencies. But when the general person is going to the store and purchasing something, they want consistency. They want to know it's going to be the same thing other, every time. You know, unless they're getting an artisanal product or, you know, a, a, a realizing seasonal foods change. But for packaged stuff, a lot of times people want the very same thing. So back to the story, I, I, the, the scientists that was interviewed in this was talking about how reducing sugar by 5% is relatively simple. They can do that. It's not going to really change the, the flavor or the texture because the milk will cover up the components in the yogurt. It will make the makeup for that sweetness. 5%, no big deal. The crazy thing is like kids don't even really register sugar unless they're introduced to so much sugar to begin with. Yes, but we're talking about something that's already on the market, something that's already on the market. If they change something drastically, if it doesn't, if it's not the same thing, then it's... Then but do you it, really think even kids, I get I get what you're saying, um, like the difference, it's like a different product essentially, but I, I, I'm i wondering if kid, kids really, I guess... Market research what, says yes. Depending what age. I mean, Market yeah. research would say yes. If something changes, they're not... They're, kids are either, according to market research in this regard, they're either going to like it or they're not. Okay. To me, so, yeah, we're was... talking the mass market. I mean, we're not taking every individual kid, of course, yeah. or kids may be raised in different ways than others. But, you know, for the general mass populace, if, if it's not, they're either going to like it or they're not. And so they want something that's going to still be consistent and still going to be similar to the taste that they've had. And so that's where they're saying dropping it by 5% isn't a big deal. What they're looking to do is, or what they wanted to do was really, for one, challenge themselves to do something they hadn't done. 25% is quite a bit because what happens then is that um, the viscosity and other characteristics are altered. So you get different texture. If you take out that much sugar, it's going to be a different end product. So they essentially originally put sugar in in the smoothie and now are trying to figure out how to take it out. Well, they're they're looking at well, they did this as a soft sell, like a, not a soft like change. They didn't announce it. There's just a slight little yeah. thing saying that there's less less sugar in this because they didn't want to give it again for marketing reasons most likely. They didn't want to give it the health the the health 
thing, health selling thing, because I mean, pr- probably these kids aren't really interested in that, but yes. you know, certain, and they might notice certain parents are interested in looking at the nutri- nutritional things. And if they're able to compare and see that there's a lot less sugar in this, it's very much so better for selling, you know, maybe they're trying to do it for the goodwill of making kids uh, consume less sugar as well. But, but anyway, it's kind of like a, a challenge because what it's doing is like, as they refer to it as is wreaking havoc on the taste, texture and acidity by dropping the sugar that much. Okay. And so, uh, they, the, the quote is we decided to do it because it would force us to do something we had never done. If we were to meet that target is to make it. And again, that's, uh, Mr. St. Dennis said, and so that was one of the the guys. And they also interviewed a scientist in there that I don't know the guys, the name off the top of my head, but so it's a challenge, you know, they're a big corporation, you know, they can do it because Danone maintains a library of 4,000 bacterial cultures. And that's just for creating their yogurts. I mean, they, and, and that's really just lactobacillus delbruchi subspecies bulgaricus and streptococcus thermophilus. The ones we've talked about before in previous yogurt. I love episodes. how you say those really quickly. They're just so much fun. I disagree, but that's why I, you always say them. Yeah. And, and it will in, I just found it fascinating for one, that they have 4,000 bacterial cultures that the, again, those would be direct set cultures, not the heirloom cultures. I mean, they're, they're, isolating these bacteria and putting them in different balances of the, in the equation with pretty much dealing with two major versions of the bacteria strains and, and creating these different things and they get different results with everything. So talk about scientific there. I mean, they are definitely testing things out. I mean, this thing took them, I don't know how many months, I think almost two years to create, to create something that was equivalent so finding, and they ended up having to go outside of their 4,000 that they have and had to go outside and find other mixtures of the, these strains to, uh, still using the same major strains, but different combinations, different things to get the texture, the consistency and the acidity to be the same. And they obviously were successful. They were. And so far, what did it say? It said so far there has been no impact on sales of smoothies. So they just continue to climb as normal. So in, in sales. So, so it it, it wasn't noticeable. I wouldn't have thought it'd be that big of a deal, but I also generally, I mean, not really But you dislike sugar or you're always the one to favor less sugar versus more. So. Well, definitely. So So there's that, but I'm saying in general, I don't eat a whole lot of packaged foods. I wonder if that'd be different. If I had always eaten the same packaged food, maybe I'd notice a lot more, but since I eat a lot more seasonal foods and ferments, which are different a lot of times and my heirloom yogurts don't always turn out quite the same, but they always turn out good enough or good to me kind of thing. So I'm used to inconsistency. So being used to it, I'm not, I probably wouldn't necessarily notice a 25% decrease in smoothies. Well, I think it's, I would. I can't imagine noticing that kind of change in many things, but I think those. This is specifically for people that probably consume the product probably every day, multiple times a day. Otherwise, really, unless it's like, uh, yeah. I mean, I agree with you. So to me, I would just. I'm guessing that this would be really loyal customers that would maybe be turned off by the change or the texture. Yeah, wouldn't that be the same as like the major soda brands changing, reformulating their their ingredients yeah i think diet or i think coke one one year had started adding sugar um kind of like pepsi and uh, i mean they were losing sales because um, it changed things and if because it, it wasn't it, the same product people that drank drank coke liked the coke for its bitter um less sweet flavor and people that drink pepsi like the sweet pepsi and so um then yeah coke went back and stopped 
So while some of these things may seem like, what's the big deal? I mean, it'd be the same kind of thing as like but I, someone... I guess for me, soda drinks, though, you drink, I mean, those people that drink soda drinks drink them every day and many time, many probably throughout the day. So that is something that's kind of like water to us, people that don't necessarily drink sodas. Um, but I mean, it's like, are people really drinking yogurts that much that you, uh, you know? I, I, I mean, you know, if a kid's picky... Possibly. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's no really different than, I guess, if I really think about it, because I'm pretty lax with my fermentation related things. Like, I really want to make really good things, but just in not wanting to waste things, as long as it tastes good, I'll still eat it or I'll incorporate it in other ways. Like, if a sauerkraut turns out kind of mediocre because I've experimented with a different process or have been trying something new and the texture or something is off, I'll throw it into more cooked foods. And that's a good way to deal with the texture because I still get that nice flavor and it's not exactly what I wanted anyway. So I'll just cook it instead as opposed to eating it as a side dish. I think it's a good way to approach it because then at least you're not discouraged from making more. But for something like someone that really likes wine or coffee, you know, it's like those are inconsistent things from year to year, from season to season. And so... Uh, from potentially from roast to roast, but that's generally a lot more consistent. Unless you're a Starbucks drinker. Yeah. And then, yeah, you'll definitely get your consistency then. But if, if, but for some of those more artisanal foods that aren't even consistent, it's still one of those things where like someone that doesn't drink those things might be like, what's the big deal? I mean, like when you're comparing two different wines or two different coffees, it's like, what's the big deal? I mean, they taste pretty much the same. So for someone that's not in it every day, like an outsider perspective, like we are coming with these smoothies and, and sugar. I'm sure it's a lot different or or we would be with sodas or anything else. And it's like, I can relate to the coffee or the wine being like, yeah, that one's crap. And this one's actually good, you know, and, and, and be able to kind of differentiate what those reasons would be I without guess. even necessarily, well, with doing a side by side test would definitely give me a better picture of that. But even, even just like going with memory as f- failed as that is, I mean, it's your point. I mean, I can kind of relate with coffee. Yeah. So I, I, I'd, I'd say that there's probably is something to it, but I just found it fascinating to think about spending two years dealing with 4,000 plus cultures to try and get the formulation just right so that it doesn't taste any different. No, that is pretty impressive. And that, I mean, I, I'm wondering if the company just has kind of seen that unhealthy sugar isn't a way, you know, it's not going to be something that's going to be popular in the future. So, yeah, you got to follow, follow the market trend. I mean, if yeah. if if sugar was even more popular now, they'd probably be trying to add twenty five percent. But that's just that be that be another challenge exactly. in the same same way. But in other things, there was a a short little video that was uh, just a two minute video, but it just looked at the the immune system um, and the microbiome. So. Not exactly food, but again, microbiome being affected potentially with food. But it's an interview with uh, Professor Graham Rook, and uh, it was on the Gut Microbiota World Watch. But it's just a couple-minute video, and he refers to things like the immune system is like an army. And he also refers to things about the 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 reasoning or potential evolution of of human babies being born so or animals generally being mammals being born so close to the anus. Because it it very oh. quickly gets a baby incorporated that is otherwise sterile to yeah. the gut microbiota of the mother. 
Um, so different things like that that are, that are just kind of uh, an interesting takes on these things. And one other thing that I highly recommend listening to, it kind of goes over a lot of things that we do, but maybe a little bit more succinctly is a little less rambly and a little less conversationally would be, um, on the Nordic food lab again. Awesome. A little, a little dry, but what? <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. I was judging the video, the, the audio, the audio. Sorry. Yes. I didn't think it was dry at all. I thought it was very exciting. But you and think you a lot well. of weird things are exciting though. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's a little geeky, but it, it was, it was good. It's uh, on lactic acid fermentation. It was just a condensed version of a talk that was given at Nordic food lab. And I highly recommend that everyone go to the show notes and listen to that. It's just 13 minutes or so. It does dive in a little bit deep, but they are all things that we've covered. I think there's one or two tidbits regarding oxygen and anaerobic fermentation, which are interesting, which you should let, uh, you know, that one was kind of new to me, but, um, pretty much everything else should make sense. If you've been following along should being the key word. Yeah. You didn't feel I that mean, quite no, as much. I, I, found, I found that interesting. Definitely. But, um, you know, it's just, it's audio and the way it was presented. It's just not, the... you have something against audio. I mean, this, this podcast is audio. <laughs> no, not not just a specific talk in an audio format didn't work well for me. I there are certain things that you know are great for an audio, like an audio book, um, and certain things I prefer in a video format. And this one, I think I would have preferred something about the way it was presented. It was just harder to follow. In it was an probably audio. because it was condensed because you're getting it cut in clips. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's what it was. Just it was just more, yeah. That's probably what maybe it you is. listen to it too late at night. Maybe it was late in the evening, but I, I recommend everyone listen to it. It's good. It's good stuff. I mean, just check out Nordic food lab in general, mention them a few different times. They come up with awesome stuff and uh, they're more geared towards chefs and, and what they're dealing with, but it still works for the amateur home fermenter as well. And uh, that's pretty much it. Unless you want to look at a cheesy business card that I put, a, I'll put a link in the show notes for that too. But a, a cheese company, I can't think of where they're from right now off the top of my head, but they... Uh, you really got to get better about these small spe- specifics. What if someone who happens to live in the nearby location of this cheese making business card um, and wants to go they're get it? They're known for more than their business cards, but they are. Um, they they had a business card design firm that was uh, that's shaped like grater. a business card, but it's a cheese grater. It, it looks pretty sweet. Yeah, they had to start limiting their customers uh, to one a week because they were just... They, <laughs> really? They went out of their first thousand right away. Well, I mean, yeah, because it's an actual Yeah, people want, people wanting business cards. I mean, that's kind of a, a big thing. Hey, it's... And I'm sure they're not cheap because they're actually not just cardboard. Nope, but then every time someone's grading their fancy cheese, they see their business name on it. Yeah. Whatever that business was. It's it's a definitely a creative way of... Bon vivant. Cheese shop. Don't know where that's at. Sorry. <laughs> look at the look at the show notes. Again, you can find those show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash twenty-three. And uh, you can also hit us up on Twitter at firmup, on Facebook at firmup. You can send us a email at podcast at firmup.com. Any way you'd like to get a hold of us, we're at firmup somehow. And until next week, firm up! <laughs>